Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Unfortunately, disasters have plagued human history since the dawn of human transportation. Some were caused by human error. Some have been mistaken by our enemies as threats. And some are just simple mishaps. But when we think of maritime disasters, I'm sure our minds immediately drift to the Titanic, and rightly so. However, there is an unknown sea vessel mishap that has gone down as the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history. And it's not the Titanic. Just days following the end of the Civil War, a wooden steamboat in the cold waters of the Mississippi River explodes, leaving Union and Confederate soldiers with a decision. Continue the Civil War sentiment or appeal to the goodness of their hearts and save each other from the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history, the sinking of the SS Sultana. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Phil Horander here with Phil Schaff who's getting ready to share episode 19, The Mississippi Mishap, as we continue along with season one of The Missing Chapter. Now, this story has so many incredible layers to it, and I'm very interested to hear what Phil has prepared for us today in its entirety. But before we get to that, we decided this morning to get a little creative with our coffee selection. That's right, Phil. So uh, I know a lot of our listeners have already uh, listened to Chris Bauer's episode um, and he made a, he made the pot of coffee for us today. So he combined two Utica roasting coffees, the pistachio and the southern pecan, and then topped it off with a little French roast from Starbucks, which pretty incredible blend of coffees here today. Yeah, and thinking of it, the the Starbucks French roast is a dark roast, and I think alone might have been a little bit too strong, but the pecan and the pistachio that combination really kind of leveled it out. It's it's yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's a phenomenal blend of coffees, and hopefully uh, that brings us a phenomenal story here today. So. I think we should start off by uh, giving our listeners a little timeline of events. It gives us a scope of the of these events because I think it's it's crucial to this emotion and the difficulty that's involved with, in this event, Phil. So let's start on April 9th, 1865. Uh, General Robert E. Lee surrenders his Confederate troops uh, to the Union's uh, Ulysses S. Grant at uh, Appomattox Courthouse, which you've had an episode about. Yep. Um, and this marks the beginning of the end of this just grinding four-year-long American Civil War. So the reason why I'm mentioning this, though, is to really showcase that the tensions are, are still very, very high and people that the whole country is still recovering. So then if you fast forward about 12 days, April 21st, the SS Sultana is commissioned to take off from New Orleans. OK, so now it's going to travel upriver against the, the current. And then on April 26, the Sultana arrives in Vicksburg, where one of the boilers is going to undergo some eventual repairs. Um, and then a series of bad decisions is going to take place at that point. And then, of course, on April 27th, that's when disaster strikes. So we kind of have a, a scope of, of what's happening here uh, <clears throat> leading up to the disaster. So let's talk about what we know about the Sultana. 
It's about 260 feet long, 42 feet at its widest point. It's got four boilers, two huge smokestacks, two large side wheels, and about four stories high from the bottom of the boat to the top of the smokestacks. So it's 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 pretty um, large in size. It's not like Titanic size, which is Titanic is almost double uh, height and width of that, but it's still a, a fairly large river going vessel at the time. Um, and it's called a wedding cake design steamboat because it has multiple layers. And we're going to post some pictures on social media so you guys can see this. Uh, and it, at this time period, this is going to come with some advantages and disadvantages. You know, it's it's actually known for its economic advantages because it's actually fairly efficient for the time period. But it really comes with a safety trade-off. So uh, let's pay attention to this. Number one, it has some highly flammable lightweight wood, which is covered with paint and varnish. So you can only imagine, God forbid a fire ever breaks out in this thing, it's going to go up pretty quickly. And then the water levels in this tubular design system had to be really, really carefully maintained at all times. Uh, because as I'll mention later in the, the podcast today, you're going to see that there, there could possibly be some hot spots if uh, it's not cooled down by the, the river water. So we'll talk about that later. I think the most crucial piece of information, though, is that this boat has a carrying capacity of 376 passengers. So really keep that in the back of your head. Um, 376 passenger carrier. But on this day, there's anywhere between 2,100 to 2,500 people on board. Right. And it, for our listeners, if you have in your mind what you think a large Mississippi steamboat looks like, like you just described, Phil, the large paddle wheel, multi-layered with some beautiful molding, the crowned uh, smokestacks. That's exactly what it looks like. Exactly. Like yeah. the, the quintessential riverboat steamship you can think of. That's right. So I think the question is now, when you're overloaded by that many people, the question is why? So I think we have to go back to the person in charge uh, who is the captain, Captain James Mason. So on April 21st, while they're docked in New Orleans, a, a fellow captain from their next destination in Vicksburg, uh, Mississippi, Captain Reuben Hatch, comes to Mason with a deal. So at this point, he says, you know, thousands of recently released Union prisoners um, had been held by the Confederacy at, at prison camps in Alabama, southwest Georgia, and then brought to a small camp outside of Vicksburg, uh, outside of Vicksburg to await the, the release to the north. So Mason wasn't aware of this, but but Hatch was. The U.S. government would pay up to five bucks per enlisted man and between eight to ten dollars per officer to any steamboat captain who would take a group north. So Captain Hatch knew that Captain Mason needed the money. So he suggested, hey, listen, I can guarantee you a full load of about fourteen hundred prisoners um, if Mason would kind of give him a little, little kickback, agree to give him a little money in return. So hoping to gain a lot of money through this deal, Mason, of course, is, is quickly going to agree to this offer. So on April 21st, 1865, the SS Sultana leaves New Orleans with about 70 cabin and deck passengers, some livestock, uh, crew about 85, which is pretty typical. And there's a total of about 155 passengers plus livestock to make the 200-mile trip to Vicksburg. So it's really, it's within reason. There's 376 passenger limit, don't forget. So here we go. About 10 hours south of Vicksburg, one of Sultana's four boilers starts to spring a leak. So it's really under reduced pressure. The steamboat kind of limps its way into Vicksburg to get the boiler repaired and to pick up some of the, you know, the promised load of prisoners. They finally reach Vicksburg. Remember, under low power, in, in need of much, uh, you know, much needed repair. 
and a mechanic was called in. So, of course, the captain, being the captain, calls in a, a mechanic and, and gets his opinion on how bad uh, you know, the, the boiler leak was. So after some time, they, they found that a, a, a seam on the boiler itself had burst and needed replacing, not just repair, but needed replacing. But the replacement would, would of course, take a few days. So now Captain Mason really needs to make a, a vital decision. Do I, do I fix the problem and miss out on the load of passengers that were promised? Or do I just kind of patch the problem and take on the, uh, the promised passenger load? That's the, that's the big debacle here. So what does he decide? Well, when it comes to that kind of money, he decides to patch the problem. So he convinced the mechanic to make the temporary repairs rather than the overall replacement. So it's interesting because you're early in the story, but already we've seen the captain make two fateful decisions. Right. One being let's over um, populate the, the riverboat and move beyond its capacity. And let's also patch the boiler rather than, you know, delay the, you know, the second leg of the trip. And Exactly. Yeah. yeah so and, and I think the pictures that we'll post on, the, on social media will help you really visualize this. The boilers are massive. So when the mechanic takes this um, takes this problem and he says, well, I think I can fix it with a patch, he actually hammers back the boilerplate that was bulging under the pressure, but he riveted a patch of metal that was actually much thinner than the boiler itself, okay? So that's, that's obviously a crucial piece of information here. So instead of taking two or three days, this temporary repair took really only one. So that Sultana took on the promised load of passengers, even though there were two other steamboats docked at Vicksburg. And that, that's the part... When I'm doing my research on this thing, it really boggles my mind. There was already two other boats, two other steamboats ready um, to take some of the, the soldiers north. So there's really no need for them to pile on all these people. It's not like it was a, it was completely necessary. So it really boils down to, um, you know, pun intended, boiled down to the fact that they needed this money. So here's another issue. There was a mix-up with the passenger books. Other steamboat captains felt something was a little bit fishy here. They felt that there was uh, maybe some sort of bribery taking place. Now, for you listeners that are, you know, trying to map all this thing out, they're probably thinking, "Oh, that's why they, they gotta they gotta know that something's going on with this SS Sultana." But in fact, they're thinking there's some sort of um, fishiness taking place on other boats, hmm. and they're actually looking to Colonel Hatch as the guy who's maybe altering some of these passenger books. So this, this caused the officer in charge of the loading to place every single man at the pro camp to board the Sultana. So the blame is not only you know on the captain and Hatch himself, but the blame is also on this guy in charge of the loading. So there's there's a lot of factors that take place. And I think you know in the, in the initial um, storytelling of this, you kind of got to go to Captain Mason and be like, dude, what were you thinking? putting all these people on there. But then it's, of course, Hatch has a big dealing with this. And then, and then the quarter mason who is, who is here in charge of um, loading all these passengers on the Sultana. So it's a combination of a lot of really just horrible, horrible decisions. So here we go. A couple days later, on the night of April 24th, 1865, the SS Sultana boards, ready for this? 1,960 paroled prisoners, 22 guards, 70 paying Pass, uh, captain passengers and 85 crew members. So here it is. Here's the total. Remember, capacity is at 376, a total of 2,137 people. Now, I think there's another piece of information we got to add to this too that a lot of the prisoners that had been on board, remember, union prisoners that had been on board, 
They're weakened by their incarceration in these in these Confederate prison camps, one of which uh, was Andersonville. Yeah. And and you think of the conditions of Andersonville. You, know, um, you, you mentioned that to me earlier. What a notorious prisoner uh, war camp that was. The conditions there almost conjure up, you know, images of German camps in World War II, the rampant disease, the contaminated water, minimal shelter. They talk about guys and, and you know, exposure to the elements. So it gives you an idea of how weakened they are. It gives you an idea. I can't believe you actually had Andersonville prisoners on the same boat as Confederate soldiers, you know, together. And, and you throw out these numbers, Phil. I'm surprised that this boat was even able to stay afloat for as long as it did. And actually leave dock. Well, and, and that's there's some other factors environmentally um, that is going to play a, a big hand in this, too. And I, I think it, it brings up a good point, though, because these Andersonville prisoners are are already incredibly sick. Mm-hmm. Um, they're incredibly weakened by, by being in these prison camps. But it's got to be they're gaining some sort of strength, maybe from the excitement of the end of the war or going back home. But you're right. It's, it's overloaded by almost 2000 passengers. And on top of that, the men are packed into every single possible space because at, at a capacity of 376 and over 2,100 passengers, you got to just overly pack everything. And it, and it actually becomes so overly packed that the decks actually begin to creak and even sag. So instead of unloading some passengers, which I think you know a typical person that has any sort of sense and logic would do, they actually haul in heavy wooden beams to support the sagging floors. So I, I can just imagine that conversation between the captains or between the crew and saying, hey, listen, I mean, the floors are sagging. If you go on to the, the, the main levels, the ceiling is essentially buckling. What should we do? Uh, I think the first step would be removing some passengers. No, let's bring in some heavy wooden beams and, and uh, jack it up. I, and they're so focused on gaining this extra money, I, it, whether that's, that's right. greed or necessity for where they're at now at the end of the war and people are desperate for additional funds. But like you said, I mean, they're so focused on maintaining that population to get that additional money. They're not even considering the safety precautions or, exactly. you know, ramifications. It's mind boggling. Yeah. I know we're not in it, but it, it's mind boggling that would make some of these decisions. So here we are overloaded and underpowered. The Sultana set sail. So not only were they overloaded and underpowered, they then, how about this, had to spend the next few days traveling upriver yet again. And on top of that, this year was one of the worst spring floods in the river's history. So I, I got to give you this visual. At some places, the Mississippi River overflowed so badly, overflowed the bank so badly, it actually spread out to be three miles wide. Uh, there were trees along the riverbank, which were almost completely covered. You could only see the very tops of the trees themselves. And I don't know if as anybody has ever seen some very powerful flooding um, I know in upstate New York, we've, we've seen our fair share of flooding in the past, you know, 10 years or so. Um, you can almost picture the swirling, muddy effect of this. And I think the awe-inspiring uh, part of the power of water is just how powerful and how destructive it is. And not to mention it, in April, in this part of the United States, temperatures can drop to freezing or close to it. And that's exactly what happens here. So you have overloaded um, Sultana. You also have the the flooding that's taking place. You have uh, a broken and basically in need of repair, um, in need of replacement boiler. And then on top of that, you have, you know, just this powerful floodwaters with freezing temperatures. So there's a really just 
a horrible recipe recipe for disaster here. So Captain Mason, I think this is a crucial piece as well. Captain Mason is pretty worried about the boat being top heavy and shifting from side to side because here's here's a quote directly from Captain Mason. He says, I would give all the interest I have in the boat if it safely lands at her destination. Hmm. So now, a couple days later, on the night of April 26th, the Sultana actually reaches Memphis, Tennessee. And here's the good news. They unload about 120 tons of sugar and possibly leaving behind 200 men. So the documents that I've read here about this, that number can fluctuate a little bit, but at least they, they unloaded some of the weight. So the bad news is, though, they went a short distance upriver, and then they took on a new load of coal from some of these coal barges. So here we are, not just a series of unfortunate events, but a series of just truly, truly bad decisions. Uh, so they're making their way north. They're following the twists and turns of the river. The Sultana, if you can picture this, is now going against floodwaters, and it's leaning severely to one side and then the other. So if I give you some more visuals here, the four boilers are, are kind of interconnected, and they're mounted side by side. So you got to picture this. As the boat is tipping sideways, water would tend to kind of spill out and run out of the, the highest boiler. And then with the fire still going on against the empty boiler, this is going to create some really, really massive hot spots, as you can imagine. So then when the boat tips the other way, water would then rush back into the empty boiler, hit those hot spots, and then turn instantly to steam, which would create a sudden surge in pressure. And don't forget, you have a faulty repair job. So now all of this together, you can imagine what's going to happen on April 27th, 1865. And Phil, I'm thinking to myself, the passengers must have been aware of a lot of this too, because your description and the size of the boat and the number of people on the boat, they have to be aware that you know, there are some things and some elements at work that are pretty unsafe. It's not just the captain who's worried right. about this, too. At the very least, just questionable decisions. Right. Like, why are we being packed in together? Why, I mean, you're looking around, there's floodwaters happening, which stretches the Mississippi three miles wide. What's going on here? And I, I don't know if it's because there's only a few uh, cabin passengers that had paid and the rest were just weakened soldiers, what it was. But, I mean, the idea is they, they must have been aware. Right. So now here we are, April 27th, 1865, at 2 a.m., and they're just a few miles shy of Memphis. Uh, its boilers suddenly explode. So I got to give you the, the, the following description here is a, a book by Gene uh, Salaker. It's called The Disaster on the Mississippi. I got to read this because it, it just does such a good job of highlighting uh, some of the events that take place while this uh, tragedy unfolds. It says, first one boiler exploded. Followed by, followed by a split second uh, by two more. The enormous explosion of steam came from the top rear of the boilers and went upward at a 45-degree angle, tearing through the crowded decks above and completely demolishing the pilot house. Without a pilot to steer the boat, Sultana became a drifting, burning hulk. The terrific explosion flung from the deck passengers, uh, flung, excuse me, some of the deck passengers into the water and destroyed a large section of the boat. The twin smokestacks, they topple over, the right-hand one backwards into the blasted hole and the left-hand one forward onto the crowded forward section of the upper deck. The forward part of the upper deck was crushed down onto the middle deck, killing and trapping many in the wreckage. Fortunately, the sturdy railings around the twin openings of the main stairway prevented the upper deck from crushing down completely onto the middle deck. Those men sleeping around the twin openings quickly crawled under the wreckage and down to the main stairs. Further back, the collapsing decks 
formed a slope that led down into the exposed furnace boxes. The broken wood caught fire and turned the remaining superstructure into an inferno. Survivors of the explosion panicked and raced for the safety of the water, but in their weakened condition, soon ran out of strength and began to cling to each other. Whole groups went down together, end quote. So as we give you this uh, description and visual of this tragedy, it was, a, it was really an explosion that sent all sorts of things, steam, boiling water, shrapnel to anyone even close to the boilers. And then needless to say, you know, the casualty numbers were extraordinary. Uh, there were other boats on the Mississippi at the time who would eventually hear about this. So they end up racing to help. But the earliest one to get there was actually a half hour after the explosion. And at that point, the damage had already been done. But I, I really feel like this story, Phil, is more than just a tragedy on the Mississippi because despite the Civil War being over just a few days, the steamboat's Union passengers were ready, were rescued by Confederate vets. So the boat had still been passing through Confederate territory when it burst into flames. So though they had been on different sides of the war just days before, they risked their lives to help their fellow soldiers, which I think is, is remarkable. And one of those Confederate soldiers was a man uh, by the name of Franklin Barton. He saved uh, several Union soldiers. And one of his descendants is quoted in saying this. He served in the 23rd Arkansas Cavalry, and he was tasked with, among other things, raiding ships going up and down the river. A few weeks earlier, he might have been attacking the Sultana if it had come in. I think that's just it, the, the irony in all this and, and the um, how things are just coming together is pretty phenomenal. And actually, some people came ashore on the Arkansas side of the river as well, which once again was under Confederate control during the war. And one of those local residents to help was a guy by the name of John Fogelman, an ancestor of the current uh, city of Marion's uh, mayor, Frank Fogelman. So there are some newspaper accounts that suggest that John Fogelman and his sons spotted the burning Sultana as it drifted downriver. And he says the wind blew the fire to the rear and burned that out. The paddle wheel fell off of one side, causing the boat to turn sideways. Then the other paddle wheel fell off. So now eventually, if you can picture this, the Sultana turned so that the wind was pushing the flames toward the bow where there were 25 soldiers remaining. Fogelman's ancestors didn't have any boats to reach the trapped soldiers. So here's what they did. You ready? By quote, it says, I understand that the Fogelmans, this is a historian speaking about this, um, about this event taking place. The Fogelmans were able to put together some logs to make a raft and go out and take people off the boat as it drifted back this way. In order to save time, they would set the people off in treetops and go back to the boat to take more off. So the very trees that were clogging the flow of the river are now being used as rafts as some of the survivors were saved from the tops of these semi-submerged trees. All 25 of those soldiers were rescued, historians say, and the Fogelman home became actually a refuge point for Sultana survivors. But the passengers who survived the initial explosion, explosion excuse me, had to risk their lives in the icy Mississippi, remember, or essentially just basically go down in flames. So these guys are going to experience, obviously, drowning, uh, but more so hypothermia. And then as the as the, the months you know, go on, they're going to be exposed to all this, this kind of sickness, and there's going to be a lot of people who pass away from that as well. And you know, victims are going to be continuing to be found downriver for months, and unfortunately, never a lot of bodies were never recovered. So seven hours after the explosion, the skeleton of this ship, of the remaining ship, drifted about six miles, sank at around, I think, 9 a.m. Uh, near present-day Marion, Arkansas, and of course, 
casualty numbers were just phenomenal. Um, you know, it's still debated, but it is estimated that at least 1,547 lives were lost immediately, about another 250 or so uh, that died later from burn, sickness, that kind of thing, for a total of about 1,800 people, 300 more than the Titanic fell. Yeah, and you, you know, you mentioned seven hours after the explosion, the skeleton finally gave way and sank. But it, from the sounds of it, that initial explosion, Phil, did so much damage. Yeah. You know, it, it took people not only off guard, but the amount of damage it did, it really didn't give people a, a lot of time to react. Right. And, and you, you think of Titanic when you think of maritime disasters, there was at least a slow sink to it. And people had an opportunity to kind of get their wits about them and decide what to do. Whereas the damage done by that original explosion. Yeah, it, that know, was the devastating right. portion of it. There's really not much reaction after that. The only thing that, that could be done is people on the shore, because as, as wide as that river was at certain points with the flooding, the three miles wide, you know, at least you're not in the icy waters like the Titanic River. Right. There's nobody around to save you. So that's where you see some of the um, the positives that come out from this is that the people on the shore risk their lives to, to, I mean, to put rafts together from these submerged trees. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, there, there were some silver linings to this. And I think one of the things that did help some of the remaining people to survive was that a lot of Memphis had actually turned into a supply and uh, recuperation city where there was a lot of hospitals that were being created from the war. Um, and there was the, the, the very latest medical equipment and trained personnel. So even though the post-accident, uh, post-accident, excuse me, casualties were minimal, it did still happen. But I think that for me, before we get to the break, I think there were, there are some questions that remain. Number one, was this called by a natural phenomenon? You know, is it, would you blame the floodwaters? Would you blame the icy waters? Or is it really just a series of bad decisions? And if it really boils down to the fact that it was a series of bad decisions, then has anyone been held responsible, accountable for this tragedy? And I think the last one is, it's just the origin of our podcast in itself is, why haven't we heard more about this? W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. You know, Phil, I really enjoyed this story. It was something that I had no idea even happened in history. Um, and, and I love the fact that it went along with, you know, Reconstruction in the days, you know, following the Civil War. For me, you posed the question, you know, responsibility, blame. And although there were a lot of elements environmentally that contributed to the disaster, I, I look back and I, I think about what you talked about at the, the start of your story all the way up until the end. And I think part of the negligence definitely falls on the captain. I and agree. I think yep. of, you know, maritime disasters from Titanic to, to even like the Exxon Valdez, there always seems to be human error involved. Right. Poor decision making um, and hindsight, I guess, that they were part, partly to blame. Right. So if you think about disasters in the past, like if we think about, you know, 9-11, there's a 9-11 commission that is established to try to get to the root of this thing. And they actually do establish some sort of very similar kind of a, a commission like that to try to get to the bottom of what happened to this disaster. And those two questions I posed, um, who is responsible and, and why, why haven't heard about this? And I think you have to go right to the official cause. So there are two official causes for this disaster. Number one 
is mismanagement of water levels in the boilers, and number two, being overcrowded and top-heavy. So I think most people would look at Captain Mason and, and say he's got to be the one responsible because he's ultimately the one that is responsible for the safety of the ship and its passengers. Um, and even though Captain Hutch was the one to really kind of influence him, he was ultimately the one that had to make the decision to whether or not to accept that, basically that bribe. Uh, but of course, you know, you go back to Hutch and he doesn't really have um, a very clear conscience either. And I think the combination of all these things put together is really what's what's going to be the overall cause. And I, I think there's a, a piece of this too that is very interesting that once they got rid of this, um, all these questions and they found the root cause of this, they actually uh, banished the, the metal used in the boilers and you can no longer use that on any boat after this disaster. And I think this is another piece too, as far as environmental goes, um, environmental cause, is that the dirty Mississippi water really didn't help because the dirt tended to settle at the bottom of the boilers and it eventually would clog some of the tubes and the lines. So even though there are some environment, environmental, I don't know, little bits of causes there, I don't think it's the overall cause. I think it really falls onto Captain Mason and Captain Hutch. I'm surprised they made it as far as they did, limping along right. under the conditions that they were. And you think, like you said, Phil, if they'd had fewer people on the boat, would they have made it? If they'd stopped after problem number one with the boiler and fixed it properly, would they have made it? I mean, like I said, considering all of those things working against them, they were only a few miles away from their destination. And I think that's a great point, too, because, you know, here we are with Captain Mason. And I said he is the one that ultimately accepts this uh, decision to move on and accept this payment. But if it weren't for Captain Hutch, you're right. Even though they would have had uh, an, an issue with the, the boiler, he would have certainly made that decision to take the few days and fully repair it and replace it rather than just patch it. So this is actually where the commission uh, makes its ultimate decision to say that even though blame really should go to Captain Mason, they actually put blame on Colonel Reuben Hutch. Um, he actually avoided the subpoena though, because he had some political connection. There is some ties back to um, Abraham Lincoln. So that's something that, that really kind of goes unnoticed in this time period. And after the sinking of the Sultana, here's another thing. He was actually ordered uh, to appear before another court-martial tribunal, but somehow that fell through the cracks. So he's really avoiding all this accountability. And then, you know, instead of having to answer to these charges, he was actually relieved of his duties as chief quartermaster. Now, catch this, though. Weeks later, he was carrying $14,490 in government money on a northbound steamer called the SS Atlantic. Now, fourteen thousand dollars is, is an incredible lot, uh, is an incredible amount of money at that time, and the safe on the Atlantic was robbed, but the thief was caught as the boat reached St. Louis, and all but eighty five hundred dollars of the government funds, uh, Hutch said, was placed in the safe were recovered. So he has been really overwhelmingly surrounded by a lot of uh, either poor decisions, uh, some some money, some bribery, that kind of thing. And his career predictably pretty much ended in, in scandal. And ironically, that very vessel, the Atlantic, also found a tragic end as well. Because in 1873, two years after Hutch died, uh, oddly enough, in April, and almost at the exact same time of the disaster on the Mississippi at 2 a.m., the SS Atlantic killed uh, 546 people by going down. Uh, and at that time, marked the worst maritime disaster after the SS Sultana. So I think we'll finish this episode with why haven't we heard more about this? 
you know, with, with everything you said, Phil, the Titanic, with all these maritime disasters, why haven't we heard about the SS Sultana? And I think, ironically, the reason the Sultana had even been in Mississippi was to deliver newspapers, deliver newspapers to the South to report the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, which was just 12 days earlier on April 15th. So the tragedy here on the on the Mississippi was pretty much overshadowed by another tragedy, which is also another reason why Captain Mason wanted to, to set sail. I think part of the reason is he wanted to make sure that, um, you know, the, the news was traveled down to the south uh, of Lincoln's assassination. So he knew that many of the telegraphs had actually been severely damaged from the Civil War. So that was another reason why he was uh, really trying to make it make it that way and, and influence others to um, inform them of what was going on with with President Lincoln. But overall, though, I think this is more than just a tragedy on the Mississippi. It's a, it's a moment of disregard for political side or adversarial opposition. It's really it's a moment uh, of unity for humanity. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.